Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, here I am again. I know I said that I wouldn't be releasing any new episodes until the 21st of February, but it would seem that world events are not keen to wait until then. And so here I am again, earlier than anticipated, with a prominent guest to discuss the unfolding crisis in Ukraine. This interview was recorded in the evening of the 26th of January in Australian time, which makes it the morning of the 26th in Europe. And my guest is someone who certainly has a deep understanding not only of the region, but also the complex relationship between the West and Russia. I hope you get value out of this episode. My guest today is Lieutenant General Arne Dalhaug, who during his extensive and distinguished career served at the highest levels of the Norwegian Armed Forces, the Norwegian Ministry of Defence, as well as NATO. I will provide a link to an extended bio in the show notes, but suffice to say that Arne's first position as a three-star general was to serve as the Chief of Defence Staff and Deputy Chief of Norwegian Armed Forces. He later served as the Norwegian Military Representative to the NATO Military Committee before assuming the role of Commandant at the NATO Defence College for the following three years. After retiring from the military, Arnes served for three years in a senior management position for the OSCE in the non-government controlled area in eastern Donbass in Ukraine. Arnes now works as an independent expert on NATO, Russia and conflicts in the post-Soviet area. Today, Arne joins me to discuss the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Arne, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. A great pleasure to be here. Uh, firstly, congratulations on such an incredible career. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I dare say you've uh, seen a few things and done a few things. Um, but before we get into the weeds of the ongoing crisis, uh, maybe we can start with finding out a little bit more about you. What, uh, what motivated you to join the military uh, in the first place? Well, you know, um, I was an old Cold War uh, warrior, you know, and um, mm. those days, I mean, uh, everything was mandatory when it came to the military. And actually, I never planned to join join the military, but uh, I was offered uh, education as an officer during my mandatory service in the military. And after mm. having uh, completed that uh, training, I figured out that uh, this this was actually great fun. And I decided to stay on, of course, with no idea whatsoever where I would end up. But where it's going to go, yeah. That's that's the short and sweet of it. Yeah, wow. And uh, I mean, towards the latter part of your career, you've held some very senior positions, uh, and one of which was the the deputy deputy chief of the Norwegian Defence Forces. and I guess that was a fairly responsible job, particularly given uh, uh, what's happening uh, around Northern Europe and, and, of course, the threats that Northern Europe uh, has been exposed to over many decades now. Uh, how has the environment that you uh, uh, found yourself in shaped uh, your leadership uh, of the Norwegian Defence Forces? I, I think it's fair to go uh, back a little further in history mm-hmm. than uh, the, the Deputy Chief of Defence. I mean... Mm-hmm. The chief of operations uh, in Norway at uh, the command headquarters of defense uh, in uh, the 9 11 uh, took, uh, took place. You know? right. And, um, and uh, I was the one responsible for the operational 
planning of what the Norwegian forces should do on behalf of the chief of defense, of course, after right. after 9-11. So uh, I think that uh, from then on, uh, I, re- I really understood the seriousness of mm-hmm. the business. I mean, uh, when you are out on an exercise, I mean, uh, making decisions are actually quite easy. But mm. uh, when when you are faced with with the reality, I mean, you understand that what you say yes or no to could obviously cause people to die or not 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 to die. I mean, how much risk mm. should mm. the Norwegian forces accept operating in Afghanistan? Just as one one example. So I think this um, after that I got much more serious about it. And of course, being uh, the deputy uh, chief of defense, uh, the issues with Afghanistan was, of course, always uh, always with me. And also uh, many operations uh, outside of Norway, up in the Arctic, and that kind of activity that we do on a daily basis, where you have to, mm. uh, to assess what kind of risk is acceptable, given uh, what you try to achieve. So this um, uh, understanding of that war and killing people, that's really serious business that, uh, that mm. has uh, stuck with me. And, and of course, being uh, reinforced several times and also the three years that I served for the OSCE in uh, the mm. conflict uh, era, area in, uh, in uh, Eastern Donbass. So, uh, and that, that's why I also, I think I've alluded to when we spoke last time briefly that I think the decision about uh, peace and war also weighs very heavily on the Kremlin, much more mm. than most people think. Yeah, and I, and I certainly definitely want to get to that uh, because I think that's one of the key points uh, is, you know, what is the, what is the you know, risk uh, versus gain uh, that, Certainly, President Putin is uh, is, is analysing. Uh, but during your time, then also in in Donbas, uh, because you you were with OSCE for three years and uh, in a very senior role, mm. the, the Donbas region was, of course, uh, famously uh, uh, you know pro Russian uh, troops, but not Russian troops, uh, mm. as we are led to believe. Uh, what did it look like for you on the ground? I mean, was it very obvious from the start what's happening because certainly the narratives uh, and that's part of the uh, I guess part of the uh, Putin's uh, I guess propaganda machine as well is to to confuse the situation but what was it like for you on the ground was it quite obvious what was going on uh, yes uh, for uh, for us being on the ground of course we were working under the mandate of the uh, of the OSCE with the uh, transparency uh, in impartiality mm. in uh, in what we were doing but, but of course, uh, our observations could confirm that, uh, let me put it like that, that Russian influence in uh, the so-called uh, People's Republics obviously was, was very strong and, of course, uh, of course still is. Um, mm. I'm a little reluctant to go into too many details because this could um, maybe be problematic for people I know that are still certain mm-hmm. in, in, in this area. Mm-hmm. But for sure, but for sure uh, it was easy to observe that uh, the, the Russians uh, have a strong hand in what's going on in that. Mm. I mean, I guess Crimea is—it's uh, certainly no secret. Um, that's uh, that's been publicly acknowledged as well. That's uh, that's now 
uh, recognize or that Russia recognizes uh, Crimea as uh, Russian territory, right? Uh, but I think certainly the East is slight, slight, slightly different still. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, the, the only difference basically is that uh, the Russian use deniability. I mean, they try to pretend that they are just uh, a mediator and not part of the conflict. Of course, mm. that's one of the most badly hidden secrets in the world, but uh, but still they uh, keep on telling that narrative. Yeah, well, I guess Maskirovka, right? That's part of the... Yeah, uh, that, that prob- the- probably you could call it that. That was yeah. a famous word, you know, during the Cold War. Yeah, part of the deception. Uh, yeah. And, but maybe maybe before we get, get too uh, deep into it, maybe we can uh, just backtrack a little bit and, and, and maybe you can tell us, based on your experiences, what is the root of the current... Uh, conflict because it's certainly nothing new. It's not. It's not new. We know that. Uh, but maybe you can give us a, a quick summary of what is the actual uh, where it all started and why why we are where we are. I, I guess that uh, people <laughs> could even disagree where it started. <laughs> Probably, yeah. no, no doubt about that. And uh, and, and, uh, and of course we can uh, we can also um, visit uh, that. Uh, Going back to the 1991, but uh, first I'm not I'm not going to do that. And and I mean, uh, basically, the way uh, most people would agree to it was that the annexation of Crimea happened in 2014, mm. and uh, somewhat later the, the the same year, I mean, uh, Russian forces also entered Ukrainian territory and. Uh, I mean, they delivered the victories to the so-called separatists that Ilovaisk in August and uh, August of 2014, and uh, also uh, another very important uh, battle that uh, took place around the Baltic while um, mm. the Second Minsk Agreement actually was uh, was negotiated. And uh, I mean, there, are, there is no doubt whatsoever that uh, Russian regular forces participated in in both battles. Because uh, in uh, the summer of 2014, I mean, uh, the smaller ragtag people that, to a certain degree, not only on uh, their own, but still, to a certain degree, mm. uh, initiated uh, the hostilities in eastern Donbass. I mean, they were pushed up against uh, the Russian border. I mean, Ilovaisk is uh, far uh, east of, uh, <coughs> of Donetsk. So mm-hmm. It was not much left. Uh, and the same was in Luhansk. I mean, uh, Luhansk City, I mean, mm. a lot of the fighting took place east of Luhansk, between Luhansk and uh, the Russian Russian border. So uh, mm. without uh, Russian forces entering the battle, I mean, everything would have stopped right there in August in 2014. And when you say we know it was uh, Russian forces, I mean, it, w- one of the one of the issues was identifying units and so on. But, I mean, you're... you're you're still the level of certainty based on the information you received. You're, you're, it's pretty clear that it must have been uh, because yeah, no I mean, else. been uh, ov- obviously. Uh, I mean, yeah, who else, yeah. who else could uh, be crossing yeah. the border from from Russia and I mean uh, turn uh, of course. fortune of war in uh, in the favor of uh, the so called uh, republics. So uh, so that that's very obvious. And I mean, uh, mm. e- even in Wikipedia, I mean, you can find a good or battle <laughs> for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Participated in, uh, in the two battles. So uh, so after 2015, uh, and um, actually, I mean, the fighting at the Baltic in February 2015, 
stopped after a few days actually after uh, the Minsk agreement uh, was uh, was signed, the Minsk II was signed. So mm. they continued on fighting until they secured uh, the Valsev, which is a road and railroad junction that is mm. important. I've been there a few times. Uh, so, uh, and that was basically the end of the very hot period of, of fighting, you know. So after that, uh, the line of contact uh, between uh, the government side and uh, and the Russian-backed separatists uh, really haven't changed uh, very much. So mm. uh, since uh, February, I mean, small local changes, but by and large, it's still about 450 clicks and running from basically north to south. So mm. uh, that was, and after that, of course, you have had more or less the trench World War One kind of warfare mm. going on for uh, up to now, actually. Mm. And I think that's one of the one of the things that we don't necessarily realize, and and it's kind of why I asked that question because I, I've, I've in preparation for this interview, yeah. I had a look at the OSC. Um, uh, Ukraine uh, team's website and the daily reports and mm. <clears throat> going back going back months I mean the daily reports tell a very very uh, <laughs> colorful story of of the the amount of small fire engagements I mean with in the hundreds uh, uh, almost on a daily basis uh, certainly nothing nothing that's happened now in the last week but we you know going back as you even say years um, so what's different now what what why now and what's happening now and, and what is different about this particular current crisis to you know everything in the past eight years or so well I mean the, the, the current crisis is particular in one way or another way not. I mean, what's, what's going on in uh, Crimea and uh, in uh, the eastern Donbass is pretty much as, as, as people... Status quo now. Yeah, mm. status quo one. I mean, uh, uh, last year about uh, 80 uh, killing action on the Ukrainian side. We don't know the exact number on the other side, but probably higher. And uh, so, uh, so uh, they talk about uh, that you have a ceasefire, but of course, that's a ceasefire with a lot of modifications. And uh, that mm. number, number may seem a high number, and I mean it is. And uh, but it was higher when I was there. I mean, you had uh, normally quite a few casualties on both sides every month. So uh, mm. it's it's actually calmed down a little. And based upon people I speak with uh, on a regular basis living in this area, I mean, the situation there is calm, basically. So what, what is new is this uh, quite heavy force that Russia is uh, deploying uh, along the border to Ukraine from uh, up north and down to, to Crimea. And, uh, I mean, there are discussions about how many soldiers they have deployed but a safe number seemed to be at least a hundred thousand and mm. uh, and uh, that that's the new of the situation and of course what also uh, is very new was on the 15th of December Putin handing over this document uh, I mean basically demanding that you the West should turn the clock back uh, to before 1991 before mm. the Cold War, uh, Cold War ended, and uh, of course that has been uh, definitely rejected uh, and like a fantasy. I mean, not nobody mm. is in, not at all 
uh, ready to uh, to accept those demands. So the, and what what were some of those demands? Because I, well, I think um, that's an, another really important point. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, the, that's what adding yeah, to the crisis. Yeah. Ab- absolutely, because uh, Putin is trying to rewrite the security architecture of Europe, which is based upon, among other, the Helsinki Accords of 1975, uh, the Paris Accord of 1990, and uh, also uh, the OSCE uh, summit in Istanbul of. Uh, 1999, which basically are all, uh, again, based upon the text of the UN Charter and uh, giving every country uh, independence, uh, the right to choose their own security arrangement, democracy, no fairs of influence, you know, and and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and, And basically what Putin is asking for is that NATO should withdraw whatever they have deployed in uh, what used to be either Soviet republics like the Baltics or countries Mm -hmm. belonging to the Warsaw Pact like Poland. Mm -hmm. Every NATO forces should be withdrawn and the NATO should guarantee that uh, the uh, border between um, Russia and NATO will remain as it is, which means uh, no new uh, members. And also, uh, NATO's partners uh, should not be allowed anymore to accept uh, NATO training missions. And uh, I mean, the seriousness is, I mean, if you start thinking about it, is that Russia is basically claiming that the democracies of Western Europe should shortcut their own population. Because if you accept that Russia has a right to have an opinion about any country's foreign policy. Basically, you are telling that Russia has the right to just say that, okay, I hear what you guys say uh, in this election or that, but it's not going to happen. So the seriousness of all these Russian demands is basically that Russia wants a saying that in in areas where they uh, have interest, they want the saying that is stronger than the free will of the people of those countries, which is of course mm. completely unacceptable. So, uh, and of course, that's why both Sweden and Finland have, I mean, felt the need, so to speak, for the first time, just to make a clear statement. It's up to the Swedish and Finnish people to decide if they will join NATO or not. They didn't say mm. that they will join NATO. Mm. They felt the need to be clear that that's the democratic right of the people of Finland, for example. And Russia's demands basically is saying that, no, whatever you Finns are thinking about this, we are the one to decide at the end of the day. And that, mm. that's what it's all about. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen that, that uh, any country will, uh, will give up the right to follow the will of the people. I mean, if Finland should have a majority for joining NATO, they will join NATO. And that's what mm. Finnish presidents. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, and it, because it begs the question, I mean, what is you know, Putin thinking? Because, I mean, it obviously those demands are not going to be met. And I'm sure he knows that. He has to know this. I mean, he has to know the Europe and the US, NATO, will not... Uh, allow effective what is effectively blackmailing. You know, mm. do this, 
else. Mm. Um, surely he must know that. So, so uh, again, it begs the question: Why now? What is he? What is he? What what weakness does he see in Europe or the US right now that he thinks this is likely to get him a, a, a positive result uh, for Russia? I mean, yeah, you, you are asking the hundred uh, million dollar question <laughs> 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 because me yeah. and, and and I mean many of the people that know a lot more about Russia do have a problem to to answer that in a convincing way. Because mm. to be quite honest with you, I mean, what he's doing is not making that much sense. Mm. Uh, I mean, why, why now, you said? Yes, I, I would have said, why not wait until after the next presidential election in the US? Why not wait after the midterms? I mean, why right now? And, and that in itself is very difficult to, uh, to, uh, to explain because nothing has actually happened. I mean, uh, Europe was calm and quiet. I mean, uh, Russia was selling oil and uh, gas to Germany. Uh, I mean, and everyone knew that Ukraine was not going to be a member of NATO and uh, and the European Union. I mean, that's light years away. Mm. Not, mm. Nothing. And I mean, that's, that's probably the most important uh, issue. I mean, everyone just was thinking that this was calm and quiet. I mean, to the degree that anything can be calm and quiet with Russia as a neighbor, but I mean, that's a normal kind of situation. So, so it, it, it's, it's very difficult to actually to, to explain. And uh, of course, uh, and I'm not convinced, I mean, uh, some experts have pointed to, um, of course, the political situation in, uh, in uh, the U.S., uh, the botch withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan, uh, the fact that uh, Angela Merkel just left uh, as the Chancellor of, uh, of Germany. I mean, uh, it's possible that it could be. Uh, but, uh, I mean, in, in, in general, I mean, none of these issues in themselves are very convincing as an explanation for why this urgency. Uh, and uh, for uh, I mean, there, there is one possible option that I see, and I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that Russian or the Soviet Union uh, have misinterpreted the will of the West to stay together. I mean, they have challenged the security architecture before. Uh, I mean, after the Second World War, a new architecture was, of course, established in Europe with the uh, Allied forces in, in Berlin, for example. Mm. And uh, Russia, now Soviet Union back then, tried twice to get the Allied to leave Berlin, the three sectors that belong to the Allied. First was the Berlin blockade in 48-49, and then, of course, the Berlin crisis, at the, as it's called, from 58 to 61, where the forces didn't leave and the Soviet Union and the DDR ended up building the wall. And uh, also uh, the Cuba crisis, of course, comes to mind. So it has happened before that after a lengthy period of much higher tension, the Soviet Union backed down because their assessment about what could be achieved by putting pressure on the West, I mean, the, the, the assessment was not the right one. 
And I mean, it's conceivable that Putin, for some reason, maybe the three reasons I mentioned, is thinking that this is the right time. Also, of course, he has uh, the North Stream 2, and uh, and he could, he could be thinking that, or just making a wrong assessment of the will of the West to stay together when you are really pushed hard. It could be. So uh, other people have argued that it's just a pretext for an invasion because he knows that it should be uh, turned down by uh, by NATO and, and, and the US. But, I mean, no, none of these explanations are actually very convincing. Mm. Not mine either. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, no, so, but I mean, yeah. but, but, but maybe that's, but, but maybe that's, I mean, again, part of mm. the, you know, Russian deception plan. I mean, I, I mean, one of the things that we can't say is that uh, Putin is stupid. Um, he's no. certainly not that. Mm. Uh, uh, undoubtedly, uh, you know, questionable uh, in uh, sanity, uh, some would say, but uh, certainly not stupid. Uh, mm. So to, to and, and, and we certainly can't uh, discount that there is, a, there is some surprise um, uh, up his sleeve. But what what is it about, I mean, the Cold War ended. Mm. And I guess one of the things that one might say is that Putin is still fighting a Cold War uh, or still lives in that uh, Cold War mentality, uh, but in it, not in his defence because, you know, that, that, that's, not, that's not a right way to phrase it. But uh, if, if one would try to understand where he's coming from, one of the arguments that comes from the Russian side is, well, NATO existed to, you know, be the counterbalance to the USSR. The USSR folded uh, and ceased to exist as a cohesive whole, yet NATO arguably has become stronger and more influential uh, since uh, the fall of the, the wall. So what can we say about that? I mean, is that is there any truth to that in that, uh, you know, NATO, that we're, part, that we're partially feeding this psychosis of Putin's because we've allowed NATO to continue to exist uh, beyond its original purpose? Again, um, I, I think Putin has a narrative here. I, I for sure, I don't, don't, don't agree with him. And, and I mean, Putin is also a kind of difficult person to understand when it's come to this, this issue. Because, because if if we briefly go back in um, in uh, the NATO Russia history, of course uh, we should remember that the founding act of uh, the multilateral relations between uh, NATO and uh, and Russia was signed in 1997, and uh, and he was in favor of it back then. Yeah, he was in favor of it back early then. Early days. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and also the Rome summit in two thousand and two, when uh, you had the, the mandate uh, or the term of reference for uh, the NATO Russia Council that was established at that time, and uh, Putin had the opportunity to speak at this summit. And uh, I mean, um, <laughs> you should go back and <laughs> and read what he said. I mean, he was exceptional positive to uh, to the mm. one. And to the future and 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 everything, so I mean, what well, it's difficult to see what happened. And I mean, if 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 you actually go back to 1997 and the founding act, I mean, in the founding act, I mean, they talk about new members of NATO, 
So this is not coming as a surprise to Putin. I mean, it's in the text. They even agreed, and that I think is being uh, under-communicated. I mean, in the founding act, you can see that there are two, uh, I mean, how should I phrase it, that uh, we are giving Russia an opportunity to have a say in what NATO does or NATO doesn't. Uh, first of all, I mean, it's explicitly said in the founding act that NATO will not or does not have any intention to uh, deploy uh, nuclear weapons to new member states. That's one thing. Mm. And there are also uh, restrictions on conventional forces in new member states in the founding act. And that was in 97. And, uh, and uh, obviously, everyone agreed that there would be new members and that there would be a couple of restrictions being applied to those members that didn't apply to the old members. Mm. And, uh, and I mean, those uh, promises NATO kept. I mean, still there are no nuclear weapons, of course, forward deployed in, uh, in, uh, in the new member states. And uh, forces are on a rotational basis, and they are quite small forces. Mm. So, uh, of course, this increased a little after 2014. But anyway, still, you actually, based upon the founding act, you have a corridor between mm. Russia and NATO of countries that have some constraints that the old members don't have. But that is not very often alluded to. But it's mm. there. And Putin was very happy with that. And mm. was even more happy in 2002 with the NATO-Russia Council. And then, of course, five years later, he came to Berlin and told basically everyone that uh, whatever happened in the past didn't apply anymore in the Munich Security Conference. And after that, I mean, things have basically been going down the drain. But, I mean, ha what happened in, uh, in between, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but I mean, uh, there was absolutely no no uh, no surprise that NATO would uh, get new members, and it's mentioned in both documents. And also, I mean, if you go back to uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in uh, 1991, 92, I mean, Gorbachev said clearly that NATO never promised that they wouldn't go or accept new new members. The only what NATO was very clear about was that they would not uh, expand into uh, what was back then the DDR, mm. Eastern Germany. And that has also been kept. It's just national German forces in that area. So, and and that, that, that was basically, and of course, uh, back in 1991, people basically were thinking that NATO would go away. Mm. So, I mean, it was no big issue. I mean, uh, Francis Fukuyama was writing uh, the end of history, you know. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and, so, uh, what a wonderful dream. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful dream. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, all, all this is quite confusing. But uh, for sure, uh, it's very hard to see the narrative coming out of Russia that NATO in any way should have been tricking Russia mm. with all these issues. And we should remember that uh, Russia never left Moldova. I mean, that happened in 1992 when uh, Russian forces were fighting uh, in support of the separatists in Transnistria. And they have mm. stayed there ever since. Uh, and already in uh, 
1994-95, we had the first Chechen war against, uh, and the second one in 99. So, I mean, you could already see that things were slightly changing in, uh, mm. in Russia. And Russia started to uh, support the separatists in Abkhazia and in, in uh, Sofosetia in Georgia, while they were killing separatists en masse themselves in Chechnya. And also, mm. of course, they encouraged the conflict to go on in Moldova. So it's not that Russia was just sitting there doing nothing in those years, but mm. NATO more or less turned a blind eye to that because it was not that important back then. But it has escalated, as you know. Mm. Yeah, of course. I mean, is it... Uh... Does Putin have any credible grievances against the West? I mean, is there any anything that we can look back over the years and 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 analyze and say, hey, we, we might have made a mistake here, we we overstepped the mark, or we pushed him too far? Uh, and I'm only trying to obviously trying to 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 understand the person mm. uh, that Putin is and what he's seen, because obviously he's been in power for so many years as well, and I think that's potentially part of the issue is that. You know his his paranoia has been fueled over over a very long period of time. Whereas leaders in the West have changed, he's remained and he's and he's been able to build a, a much thicker, denser narrative that's of course fueled by his own confirmation bias, despite the fact that there are rotating uh, leaders in the West and changing policies, changing priorities. Uh, perhaps in his mind. Uh, you know, the West has kept its own narrative uh, against Russia. Well, that's what he perceives. Is, the, is there anything that you can put to that and say, hey, we, we should have acted differently here? And uh, you probably noticed that I'm not a great admirer of, <laughs> of, of the Russian narrative. <laughs> uh, no, and, and, and I mean, none, and, and not, neither am I, of course. I mean, no, I, I, no, I, no. No, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that some people may have this idea that uh, NATO should not uh, have uh, accepted new members in uh, the late 90s, early 2000. Uh, to that, I would say that, uh, I mean, Russia accepted that with their eyes wide open. I mean, just look at the two documents that I mentioned, the Founding Act and, uh, and uh, the Rome Summit. So there should be no surprises there, basically, to, to, to be honest. So, uh, and, and also, I mean, uh, if, if you look at, uh, I mean, the NATO strategic concept, I mean, uh, I was six years in NATO and I had many meetings in, in the NATO-Russia Council. I mean, uh, if you read the text of the strategic concept, the one before 2010, I mean, Russia was, I mean, explained in a very favorable way. And I mean, uh, Russia was called a strategic partner in the concept. And in uh, my NATO days, even as late uh, in military committee, as late as 2008, 2011, I mean, Russia was still talked about as a strategic partner, even after they attacked and uh, illegally occupied the two areas in, uh, in Georgia. So, uh, so I, I, I really don't see why uh, Putin should have this much uh, bad feelings about what has happened. Because Russia was treated with great respect and 
and uh, if you read all uh, the words said by uh, the heads of state in 2002 in the Rome summit and also Putin owns words, I mean, they are all very, very favorable uh, to, to Russia. So, uh, so uh, to, to the best of my, my knowledge, I have a hard time to see that uh, Putin should be much surprised about new members. What he would have had something to say against was, of course, if we, NATO, uh, deploy forward nuclear weapons or deploy forward heavy armored formations in uh, the new member states. Because that were the two sentences basically in the Founding Act. And that never happened. So, so I have a problem to see that the Russian narrative that should have been hoodwinked uh, about NATO membership and all that, because that was written in the text in 1997, and that NATO would get new members. And that's why you have the sentences about the nuclear weapons and what kind of forces to deploy and not deploy in, in new member states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so 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 really is a, a matter of uh, competing narratives and 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 creating a narrative to uh, fuel, um, I guess, his own uh, uh, ambitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, really, it, it really sounds like it really just comes down to realpolitik, and it really mm-hmm. is about a sphere of influence and the mm-hmm. recreation of uh, you know of the mm-hmm. motherland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess, as as seen uh, through his eyes, mm-hmm. and we of course know in what environment he grew up in and then became a, a key figure. So mm. uh, a part of me does really believe that it is the the length uh, of his uh, power uh, that has something to do with it. I mean, it's a, he hasn't had, he hasn't stepped away from, uh, you know, this narrative at all, uh, whereas in the West uh, people change and, and priorities change and so on. Um, I've read an interesting article. Uh, it was in the Kiev Independent um, by and, and written by the Center for Defense uh, Strategies, uh, which is of course a, also a Ukraine Ukrainian uh, think tank, mm. uh, and and the realistic kind of analysis on the likelihood of an actual invasion, mm. uh, and and their analysis and was quite convincingly uh, saying that the actual risk of an actual uh, military invasion um, is very low at the moment. Uh, given the build-up of troops and the the size of build-up, even to the highest possible range of I think it was like 140,000 or something. Mm. Uh, but what what they're basically saying is that um, if an invasion was to occur, there would be there would we would have to have seen much bigger build-up, logistical nodes set up, strategic reserves, uh, because any kind of invasion of Ukraine would require a far bigger uh, mass of military power uh, than what's at the border at the moment. Um, but what they're saying is that, of course, it's going to be this kind of hybrid warfare piece with psychological operations and cyber warfare uh, to really destabilize uh, Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian mindset, I guess, uh, and to kind of divide uh, from within. What's your analysis? I mean, I, I found this to be an interesting one because it's it's slightly less dramatic, uh, and it's coming from Ukraine. Uh, not slightly, it's a lot less dramatic than what we're hearing and seeing in the mainstream uh, media, at least. Yeah, well, well, actually, I've, I've read the same uh, myself. I subscribe to uh, to the Kiev um, Independent. And mm. uh, and uh, I can concur with, with a lot of what, what is written in that article. 
and uh, and of course, I mean, they are not the only ones. I mean, uh, in in Europe, several countries basically are thinking that Putin is bluffing. Uh, of course, we don't know. I mean, uh, I would say that possibility of a war, small or large, definitely is present. But mm. of course, we need to take a step back and ask ourselves why could Putin like to do that? And uh, I'm an old Clausewitzian, so I would always start with the political objective. Mm. And and the political objective, for sure, at least, is Ukraine will not be a member of NATO or and possibly also not be a member of uh, of the European Union. I mean, the reason for uh, the Maidan uh, in 2013, in uh, late uh, 13, basically was that, I mean, Ukraine was about to sign some uh, agreement with the European Union, and Putin didn't uh, live very well with that. Of course, I mean, uh, we are talking about who is to blame for what, but I mean, we should remember that back in 2013, I mean, in the, the constitution of Ukraine, it was said that Ukraine was a non-aligned neutral country. I mean, that, that was in the constitution. That was after 2008 when you had the possibility in theory that Ukraine could become a member. But we should also remember that back in those days, I mean, it was in the constitution and it was less than 30% of the population that believed that Ukraine should become a member. Now it's more than 60. And it's mm. 20% I think Russia is an enemy. So, I mean, what would have happened? I mean, contrafactual history. What would have happened if Russia just didn't do anything when the Maidan revolution happened? Probably they could they already signed the agreement about uh, having Sevastopol and uh, whatever they needed for the naval operations. And they could just have waited that out because I was in NATO back then. We had regular meetings also with the Ukrainian in the partnership uh, format. And it was no discussion whatsoever of becoming a member of NATO because mm. people didn't ask for it. And uh, the first time Ukraine took an initiative was in December 2014, after, I mean, the war in Donbass and after the annexation of Crimea. The parliament changed that in 2014, in December. Before that, mm. nobody even dreamed about Ukraine asking to become a NATO member. But the Russian actions changed that. And mm. now, of course, the problem is, is a big one. Uh, then I know it's a long answer to your question. And then back to the political objectives. I mean, the political objective, and I gave a lecture about that as early as late September or October this year. And uh, and I, I still think the same, basically. The political objective is to get uh, Ukraine away from NATO and also uh, EU membership. And for the time being, Putin is achieving that with what he's doing. He doesn't mm. need to do anything. That's why, I mean, except, of course, keeping uh, the conflict simmering in, in, uh, in Eastern Donbass. But that's about it. And that's sustainable. And, that, mm. that, uh, and if you add that, I mean, you asked why now? I mean, that makes it even more difficult to understand why now. Because he has basically achieved his, uh, his political objectives already. So why, are he, why is he doing all this right now? I don't have a good answer to that. 
Also mm. because it's very difficult, as basically described in the article you mentioned, to see military options that could actually deliver something to Putin. I mean, rationally speaking, I mean, if you sit down cold-headed, cold-hearted, and start to analyze the situation, I mean, what kind of military operations could hand Putin more than not getting Ukraine as a member of NATO? Because it's not going to happen. And Mm. not only because of the military, also because of the weakness of the Ukrainian democracy and the weakness of the institutions. And that's that's also something we should remember, that a lot of people think that it's only reform of the military that is important uh, when you apply for NATO membership. That's not true. I mean, uh, I mean the, the political credibility of the country, the political stability of the country, the stability of the institutions, good governance, uh, rule of law, and so on and so on, is even maybe more important for people mm. to understand that. And the reason is that if you are entered into NATO as a member, you have got the right to deci- to make decisions about today 30 other countries. And you don't want someone coming in there and that could be another country tomorrow than it is today. I mean, that has already happened with a couple of countries. And of course, mm. that has made both the European Union and NATO much more reluctant to accept new members because they have seen also member countries backsliding into uh, authoritarianism. So, like, are we talking countries like Hungary? Hungary is that, a typical example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, an even stronger example is Turkey. Oh yeah, well, yeah. yeah. In fact, I've got a question on Turkey because yeah. I think that's a so, that's so, a really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, uh, Hungary is typical, but you also have uh, the president of Croatia had a few uh, sentences uh, just recently. Uh, the newest member, uh, Montenegro, in NATO, mm. has a more Russian-friendly government than they used to have. So, I mean, NATO is becoming more and more aware of that. And, I mean, for the time being, I mean, it's unthinkable that any country in the East would become a NATO or a European member. So, I mean, why bother? I mean, Putin just needs to, I mean, keep... Ukraine slightly destabilized and see to it that the oligarchs are basically uh, working against any kind of of, uh, legal reform, government reform and all that. And Ukraine is not going to be a NATO member. And job done. Yeah. Yeah. So the job is done. I mean, then you should start to evaluate the political, I mean, what you can achieve by military force. I mean, uh, one idea is that you could, of course, attack further into Donbass. But I mean, that wouldn't change the government in Kiev. And that would scare Mm. up the rest of the world. And the possibility of deniability would be lost. I mean, he Mm. would have to accept responsibility. And Mm. of course, uh, I mean, what what Putin really wants is to have a new Yanukovych in Kiev. Mm. Russian-friendly president. But he was ousted, of course, because of Putin's stupid interference in 2013 about this agreement with the European Union, with basically had nothing to do with security, only, I mean, business, finance, economic, economics, that, that yeah. kind, kind of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so there, there is, uh, I mean, that will not change. And I mean, 
Putin also, of course, knows that the option he once had uh, before he did all these stupid things I would say about Ukraine was that you could actually have a Russian-friendly president elected. Today, it's unthinkable. Mm. Because that was uh, the Russian-friendly president is below 10% of the population, basically in the East and basically old people like me. I mean, if you look at uh, the age of people voting for Medvedchuk and the opposition platform, I mean, below the age of 40, I mean, the, the political party doesn't exist. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so, so obviously, I mean, Putin must know that uh, mm. there is no political yeah. uh, support. I mean, appetite to appetite. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, once, I mean, Russia had a certain amount of soft power in Ukraine to to use that uh, that word. And uh, but I mean, today, I mean, all aspects of soft power is completely collapsed. I mean, mm. uh, with the exception of uh, the military factor, I mean, Russian, Russia is completely without ability to mm. influence Ukraine. And I have mm. concluded that. And of course, yeah. it's not going to be better with starting military operations. Starting a war. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, we, 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 it, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, the problem is that what kind of operation are we seeing? I mean, every time... I get some fancy new red arrows on my map in some obscure newspaper. I'm always thinking, I mean, this guy, I mean, did he ever think about what Russia could possibly achieve by doing this? And and the question, the answer is always, this would be a disaster. Uh, and uh, I think last time we spoke that should remember that Ukraine, east of Dnieper, is about uh, the size of, of Great Britain. With, mm. uh, with uh, Almost 20 million people, a lot of really big cities, Dnipro and Parkov, to mention just the two biggest ones. Mm. And you, you would need an enormous force if you wanted to occupy that area. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, people understand that that doesn't sound good. So they come up with smaller operations. You can take this Snake Island. Uh, that's outside the coast uh, of uh, Ukraine uh, in, uh, in, the, in the Black Sea. Yes, of course, Russia could, but why should they? Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, it's all these options, these more minor options. And they also said that, of course, you could uh, launch an attack from the air. It is true. You could, but would that change the political uh, situation in Kiev? For sure not. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and all, all kinds of military options do have the downside that it would scare off the West. And, mm. and even Germany would have to accept that the German foreign, foreign policy of, uh, of the last 30, 40 years would actually be based on false assumptions because they have based all their foreign policy since Ostpolitik on the assumption that you could actually talk sensible with the Russian leaders. And I mean, if something like this could happen, I mean, the foundation of German foreign policy would just be... Collapsed. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, France has already understood that they are not influencing Putin. I mean, after Putin sent in the Wagner group into Mali after French left, 
the transforces left. I mean, I understand that. <laughs> yeah. mm, mm. I'm not going, going to influence that guy. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, because uh, mm. I mean, it begs the question that we, if we make the kind of basic assumption that Putin must know that a military victory is is so difficult in any way to imagine mm. for it to ever be tabled as a real option is is basically uh, unrealistic mm. not only from the technical aspect of it mm. uh, of actually you know the size of ukraine and and the, the military might you would need mm. uh the supply chains everything else that would one require but of course then as you just said the the the, the soft power of russia in ukraine has diminished significantly mm. and probably what would happen not probably i'm i'm sure it would be certainly that mm. the nation it would galvanize mm. the ukrainian identity and it would give birth to an even greater resistance uh territorial defense and of course there are famous even sports players now joining the territorial defense mm. and, and urging people to join uh, so we're seeing this already happening uh, so again it begs the question he certainly you know he it would be insanity to think that he could win a, a military victory especially uh, as you again rightly pointed out he's already achieving what he wanted to achieve politically. Mm. So uh, my question to you then is given the rhetoric that we're hearing certainly in the mainstream media uh, in Australia all around the world the drums of war are beating effectively if if one could if an inexperienced eye looks at this the conclusion is war is around the corner it's inevitable it's about to happen uh you know prepare uh, because it's going to happen. Mm. Are we potentially by by purely through our own 24-hour media cycle, are we helping Putin destabilize? And the reason I ask this is because I found it very interesting that even, um, even Zelensky, so the president of Ukraine, when he addressed the nation on the 19th, he himself he himself said, you know, the the nothing is new. Mm. The only thing that's new is the alarming nature of what's happening right mm. now. And he's even he's saying to the Ukrainian people, just stay calm, don't fall for the rhetoric of you know, of, of imminent war, and he himself addressed the media, you know, please don't don't contribute to, you know, increasing the heat when, you know, the, the reality is the risk of a actual invasion, um, a military invasion per se, is, 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 is basically, you know, very low, really. Uh, so my question is, is our, is our, is our own kind of 24-hour news cycle ultimately helping Putin achieve what he wants? And that's further destabilization, further fear, uh, you know, further risk of some mishap from, from our side, uh, you know, and therefore then giving him some more fuel, more ammunition to, you know, blame the West for, uh, you know, whatever mishap, whatever faux pas we might do because of this kind of panic that we're building. I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's about you know the the story of the the hen and the egg. You know who came first, and <laughs> yeah, uh, and, yeah. uh, and uh, but I mean, uh, we we briefly talked about lapse of soft power in uh, in in Ukraine. Of course, I mean, if anything happens, I mean, it would be the complete collapse of Russia's soft power also in Germany, mm. as I briefly alluded to. Mm. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, if Putin does something, I mean, he will confirm that all the countries that have always said that Russia is dangerous, there is no need 
it's absolutely useless to talk to Putin. He's a maniac and so on and so on. I mean, their views are confirmed. And, and Germany is the one uh, huge country in Europe that is basically having another view of, 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 uh, of Russia. And that's why I alluded to a few minutes ago that, I mean, if something like this should happen, I mean, soft power, I mean, Russia do have a lot of soft power in Germany. There's no doubt about mm. it. And uh, I mean, that, that would have to collapse also. I mean, the previous chancellor, Schroeder, would probably have to leave the board of, uh, of Gazprom uh, because it would be absolutely unacceptable to have the kind of relationship that Germany now has with, with Russia. And I'm, I'm sure that, that, that Putin is, is thinking about that. Mm. Uh, I mean, if there is something that could galvanize NATO, and NATO is already galvanized a lot because of this. Uh, but still, I mean, uh, Germany is uh, not willing to sell uh, weapons to, to Ukraine, uh, which is an issue in itself. I mean, given the fact that Germany is selling weapons to Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Pakistan, all those great democracies. Some of them uh, even using the weapons in Yemen, but that's an. <laughs> oh wow! So why not? Why why not sell weapons to 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 Ukraine? And of course, I mean, what is the what is the German? I mean, is it surely it's not just Nord Stream two? I mean, of course, that's a big, huge project that's of mm. course left Ukraine uh, out. Yeah. Ukraine I, left out I, as well. I mean, it, it's the the German position is very strong uh, on on this, and 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 very strange. And uh, but but you may have noticed that uh, just a few days ago, I mean, uh, seventy uh, intellectuals, uh, security policy analysts, and so on, signed uh, a letter that, I mean, Germany needs to change the foreign policy, not only when it comes to Russia, but also uh, when it comes to China, because uh, I mean. Uh, Merkel has been hailed as uh, the mother of Europe and all that. But I mean, if you really look at it, I mean, she has never taken any kind of strong statement or stood up to authoritarianism or used any kind of principles. Uh, I mean, she was much more uh, concerned about selling Mercedes to China than what happened in uh, with the. Uh, People in Seattle. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, it, it's kind of a difficult position for uh, for uh, for Germany, and it's it's been the same also with with Russia because uh, the German and Russian economy is it's not only about gas. I mean, it's very very integrated. Uh, I mean, they are the two biggest trading partners in in Europe, uh, and I mean. The reason is, of course, that, as I said, the policy is based upon that at the end of the day, there must be some sense in the Kremlin's. Mm. Uh, and if it should turn out not to be, I mean, German foreign policy is in big trouble. Then it has, yeah, yeah, yeah. Has, has, has to change. Yeah. yeah. So then, uh, then let, let me return to what mm. you asked me about, about the media headlines. And, and um, <laughs> you, you know that a catchy uh, headline can really ruin, I mean, uh, many thousand words of good analysis. <laughs> yeah. uh, and of course, in this 24-7 uh, scenario of, uh, of media, 
I mean, uh, you need a catchy uh, headline uh, quite often. And uh, so, of course, and, and I mean, the, the, me the media, I mean, if you read The Guardian, I think uh, they are kind of sober about it. And uh, But I mean, uh, I mean, there is a reason to be concerned, obviously. I mean, at the end of the day, I always say that the history of war is also a history about irrational decisions. Mm. And, uh, and at the end of the day, I mean, Putin could make an irrational decision. I mean, uh, he wouldn't be the only one. I mean, I would claim that the U.S. has made quite a few of them. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, that we would need a new podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but I mean, uh, he could. So that, that risk is always there. Uh, I mean, we, we really don't know what kind of intelligence they feed Putin. Mm. Uh, and uh, and of course, uh, I mean, if you go back to uh, the war in Iraq, I mean, Saddam Hussein mm. didn't get correct intelligence because people didn't want to tell him mm. because it was dangerous. But but uh, we also didn't, right? Of course, they, they they were generals in Saddam's. Closer circle, circle. Mm. We're thinking that this is probably not a good idea, mm. uh, but for many different reasons, uh, a lot of other, lot of other people told him that he was the greatest, you know, and and all that, and uh, and it was an article in the New York Times not that long ago, talking about the decision making system in Russia. I mean, uh, for an uh, old Cold War warrior like me, I mean. Uh, I remember the Politburo in, in Russia, mm. which was, and the Secretary General was basically the head of Russia. Brezhnev was the Secretary General of the Politburo. Uh, and, uh, and in this article, it claims that Putin doesn't have that. I mean, uh, his uh, power to make decisions is actually much stronger than the Politburo. Bureau Secretary General during the Cold War, uh, because there is no Politburo around Putin. And it's true, uh, which means that it's more important than it used to be during the Cold War, what he is actually thinking. And that's why I said that the question of what kind of information are, I mean, embassies, uh, FSB and all, actually funding mm. Putin. I mean, is it a realistic picture of the world around him? I mean, could Putin live in the understanding that Ukraine actually is waiting to be liberated? Mm. I mean, it's conceivable. Mm. Uh, mm. So, so, so we don't know. And that, that, that's what I call with irrationality. I mean, there is always some space for that, you know. And yeah. uh, and in in dictatorships like Russia basically is, I mean, uh, the feeding of relevant information to the leader is normally somewhat distorted mm -hmm. for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and I'm sure that there are many people around Putin that, and that 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 uh, I would say we know for sure that are much against what's going on. 
but they really don't have much of a say, even though they are important people in, in Russia. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, that, that's the irrational part of it. And then, of course, we have, as you say, we briefly touched upon the media. I mean, you need to catch the attention of people 24-7. So you need a lot of catchy headlines. <laughs> so, so, I mean, uh, it's not interesting to, at least not for most people, to read a long article that basically, after half an hour of reading, concludes that there is no reason for a catchy headline. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You, you see, I mean, this, right. this, yeah. this, this yeah. podcast is uh, <laughs> we are making now is basically the opposite. You know, I mean, we're yeah. talking about this for for some time, and yeah. uh, we are looking at it from from different uh, aspects. And of course, uh, when I write for the media, I mean, uh, the editor will always ask me for the punchline, and mm. I tell him that I'm not sure if there is a punchline. He said, uh, uh, we may, I'm not sure we can print that. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. But, but, that's a, but that's a real issue, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's a real problem. We, we, we need a punchline, oh. you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, so, of course, I mean, uh, this kind of worst-case scenario is more easily fed than a cold analysis of what is going on. Mm. Because we're seeing the the interpretations of, I mean, there's a number of countries that have now provided weapons uh, to Ukraine, of mm. course, you know, fam- famously and very publicly, the UK and yeah. now the US. Uh, of course, I think Biden's authorised, uh, uh, was it Estonia, Latvia, uh, to release uh, weapons? I mean, we've seen uh, a, a whole plane loads coming in from the UK. Mm. Uh, US is donating millions uh, of dollars in in military aid. Mm. Of course, this is all fueling that that narrative. And of course, these things should happen. Now, th- th- that's not the question. But I think it's the you know the the short term nature of you know interpretation of these signals leads the world to believe that the crisis is f- that we are so much much closer to the edge mm. than we really are. Um, but but and conscious of the time, and I and I'm I, but but now that I have you, I have to ask a couple of more questions. <laughs> if that's okay. Um, uh, given your experience in NATO, how are how do you think NATO is thinking about this right now in the kind of at the higher levels? I mean, is NATO as an organization right now uh, kind of planning for war or what what is their thinking? Um, and of course, also, how are decisions made? Because I think uh, I think it's important to highlight that you were part of the military committee, which is, if I understand correctly, it's consensus driven advice given, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that that, that that basically influence NATO military operations. So given what's happening in the various layers and, of course, various, like you said, Hungary and Turkey, um, you know, how is that shaping and influencing NATO's thinking right now, uh, NATO cohesion, uh, etc.? My my reading of the situation is that the cohesion among uh, NATO countries right now is very very strong, actually. And, and of course, that's... uh, and, And before all this started, I mean, there were very much different views on how to deal deal with uh, with Russia. I mean, uh, how to deal with Russia has been the most divisive issue in NATO for many many years. I mean, mm. was that back the six years I served in top NATO position also? I mean, Germany and France, Italy, had a different opinion about how to deal with Russia compared to uh, the Eastern state, Poland, Baltic, and, and and so on, and. Uh, 
so so that that has always been there and uh, but what putin has achieved over the last few years is basically that germany is the one country that has a different view on how to deal with russia compared to the others and uh, so uh, so the strategy has basically been very much unsuccessful i mean you could have the idea that putting pressure on nato would actually divide the countries even more but that hasn't happened and this and uh, i mean this this was ongoing also before this this crisis came up i mean not now i mean uh, nato is more galvanized than it's been for man, many many years with the slight exception of of germany uh, and so uh, he has achieved uh, much the opposite and uh, and of course uh, we have seen that nato has already deployed forces under nato command to eastern europe mm. uh, f- fighters troops uh, and france has even uh, suggested that french troops could be moved to romania mm. and put under nato command It is a US aircraft carrier now. I read earlier yeah, today. Yeah, well. and uh, and uh, also uh, and uh, and uh, also NATO is deploying uh, air force to mm. to Bulgaria and to to Romania. So uh, so ob- obviously that's there is a lot of cohesion in 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 NATO right now. And in addition, many of the NATO countries do follow a separate path and support your. Ukraine even more. I mean, uh, the UK, uh, for example, the US, uh, Canada to a certain uh, degree. Canada will be slightly more invisible than I expected. Uh, but mm. uh, anyway, uh, Canada is a, a strong supporter of, of Ukraine. And of course, Canada also has a huge uh, Ukrainian diaspora in uh, in. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so, so NATO is very much uh, aligned uh, behind the uh, This and for sure, uh, the necessary military planning has been done uh, been done already. Uh, yeah. So uh, and of course, you have also probably noticed that uh, the U.S. has put on uh, alert eight thousand five hundred ground troops to be deployed uh, to uh, to Europe if need be. So uh, I mean, Putin, of course, Putin will observe all this going on and he doesn't see much disagreement in nato i mean he see he sees a stone wall nowadays and mm. of course uh, it is important to be very clear about supporting ukraine and i think that the uh, i think just uh, yesterday i mean 300 more um, anti-tank uh, missiles uh, the US sent to, 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 to Ukraine. And, yeah. uh, Germans, I mean, Germans, yeah. yes. And, and everyone understands that Russia for sure could take a bite out of Ukraine. I mean, I don't think it would be rational, but they could. And mm. uh, so I think that all these deliveries of weapons now uh, will underpin the idea that there will be a strong insurgency in occupied areas. And, mm. uh, and I've always said that something Putin will have to reckon with. And mm. uh, it's obvious that a lot of Western countries will support Ukraine with the means to have an insurgency going. 
Mm. Uh, yeah. And of course, I mean, if you look back to uh, the Soviet experience in Afghanistan and also in the two wars in Chechnya, I mean, it was impossible to hide the number of body bags coming back. And uh, based upon uh, all polls in Russia, to the degree that you can believe anything that's coming out of, of Russia, it indicates that there is not much appetite for more wars among the Russian population. I mean, mm. they are poor enough as they are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe coming towards the end, I mean, I, I, what what are your thoughts on the outcome of the Blinken-Lavrov talks? And, and I mean, <clears throat> some of the analyses I've read is that, you know, it was as much as we could have hoped for, and that's a promise of continuation of uh, of talks. What are your thoughts, and 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 how do you see this play out? If if I, I know it's a difficult question to ask, but um, <laughs> of course it's again, you know, the other the 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 other you know million dollar question of uh, mm. you know uh, what what, do you, what what is your assessment on the most likely outcome? Of course, there are myriads of them, but the most likely as we go forward. Um, yes, we are back to some of the these, these are the questions that uh, no person in the EU would like to have because uh, <laughs> it doesn't have a good answer. And, 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 and neither do I. But uh, <clears throat> to be, uh, be serious, uh, I have my, my assumption is that. I've said before, Putin is not uh, reckless, he's not foolhardy, uh, and he has a history of being careful. I mean, uh, when he has used military force, I would say it's been low risk. I mean, sending troops to Kazakhstan, low risk. Annexing Crimea back in 2014, low risk, the same in, uh, in Georgia. So, uh, I mean, he, he has never done anything really reckless. So, uh, and um, I, I think, as I said at the very beginning, that, I mean, the decision to initiate a war will firmly and squarely be put on the table in front of Putin. And mm. I mean, we shouldn't think that it's an easy decision. He knows that uh, this will change his life and Europe and probably the, the rest of the world and most likely not for better. At least he should understand. Uh, of course, we are back to the small part of irrationality that could still be present, but as it is. So, so uh, I think that it's fair to say that uh, from the first discussions in Geneva and also the second meeting now, there are indications that Russia wants to talk, which to a certain degree support that. And I mean, in addition to other indicators, that there is no imminent attack uh, being planned for. Also, I don't think that anything will happen before or after the Olympics in Beijing. I mean, uh, that will really take away the glory from China. Uh, and I'm sure that China has not been very happy about that if it, the question was raised. That's that's interesting. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that, so, so uh, I guess it's not a surprise, but um, mm -hmm. that, that, that would suggest a, a lot of uh, influence from Beijing 
uh, on Moscow. Uh, and of course, we know that the relationship is mm. uh, is is not a not always a smooth one, but certainly mm. one that's uh, improving uh, <laughs> over the recent past. And of course, I don't know that they have discussed it, mm. uh, and most mm. likely they haven't. But I mean, mm. it, it's quite obvious in my mind that uh, China, for sure, will not like anything bad going on during mm. the Olympics. Because mm. this is the moment of glory for Beijing. Mm. Uh, and and I'm sure Putin also understands that. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and the indications are that this week there will be a written response to, uh, to uh, the demands Putin made before Christmas. And it seems to be more meetings coming up, which I consider mm. to be a good thing. That, that means uh, that under the Kashi headlines, some serious diplomatic work is, uh, is going on. And, uh, and uh, maybe, again, as I said, Putin may have misinterpreted the situation and he is looking for a way out. I mean, uh, and I mean, there are issues that could be discussed. I mean, uh, the reason why it's not active now is basically that Russia has left the the uh, the treaties. I mean, they have the INF treaty that could be again uh, reinforced. Uh, we have uh, the Foundation Act that I've touched upon before, with uh, restrictions on nuclear weapons and also on conventional forces. That could be touched upon again. The sizes of uh, exercises. Uh, could be mm. uh, a topic. Of course, that is already in uh, the uh, confidence and security building measures uh, administered by the OSCE, but Russia pulled away from it uh, after uh, after uh, Crimea. The latest document is from 2011. And, mm. uh, and I mean, all, all this is basically in place as a part of the security architecture that we do have. So, <clears throat> and the reason why it's not active is basically because <laughs> Russia stopped doing it. Uh, the same with uh, conventional disarmament. Russia walked away from the CFE treaty. Uh, not that I think it matters that much, but I mean, all these are things that could be, mm -hmm. I mean, again, put on the table to be, be discussed. And it could be, discussed within a framework that is already established and that doesn't challenge the existing security architecture. Because, mm. I mean, it's possible to get back on a better track than we are now without, I mean, giving anything about the fundamental principles of the security architecture. And I think mm. that is what the U.S., because it is the U.S., let's be real, uh, mm. uh, the indispensable leader that is running this. I mean, uh, the others, uh, of course, they are present around, but it's all about the U.S. And it is mm. the old NATO, actually. U.S. is running the show and the rest is walking carefully behind. And they know that the chickens are coming home to roost, you know, so you need to be careful. I mean, the summer is over and it's blowing a whole frosty wind in the autumn. So mm. it's better <laughs> yeah. to stay together. And that message obviously has trickled down to, to most countries. So uh, so uh, it, it's kind of, uh, 
I, w- I wouldn't say that war is a foregone conclusion. It's a possibility. But for the time being, I see uh, openings uh, for a sensible uh, diplomacy. Uh, not, not the one that deserves the cashy headlines, but uh, that will actually at least have a possibility. Yeah, wonderful. Well, that's uh, that's certainly a, a, a much more positive tone, at least, uh, mm. to conclude this discussion with, mm. uh, ra- rather than the uh, the headlines. So, therefore, mm. uh, I hope I hope people do listen uh, and and do dare to stretch below the surf- mm. surface and and dig a little bit deeper. Uh, on that note, Arne, I know you've given me a lot of your time, and I'm very very grateful. Uh, a very insightful conversation, uh, especially given your background. I think it lends a lot of uh, weight to. Uh, your arguments and where you're coming from. Uh, and of course, importantly, it certainly you know sets the record straight on a lot of the uh, things that we're reading uh, in the day-to-day media. And I think uh, that's that's a very calming effect, uh, one that we need right now. Uh, so thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.